0: Welcome back to the Neuroscience Meets Social and Emotional Learning podcast for episode number 174. With Dr. Francis Lee Stevens, he's taught a variety of classes in psychology and neuroscience, and his research focuses on effective neuroscience applications to psychotherapy. Today, we'll dive deep into his new book coming out this fall, Effective Neuroscience and Psychotherapy, a clinician's guide for working with emotions, and we'll explore how Dr. Stevens has taken the latest developments in effective neuroscience and applies these science-based interventions with a sequential approach for helping patients with psychological disorders. I'm Andrea Samadi, author and educator from Toronto, Canada, now in Arizona, and like many of you listening, have been fascinated with learning and understanding the science behind high-performance strategies that we can all use to improve our own productivity in our schools, sports, and workplace environments. My vision is to bring the experts to you to share their books, resources, and ideas to help you to implement their proven strategies whether you're a teacher in the classroom, a parent, or in the corporate environment. The purpose of this podcast is to take the fear out of this new discipline that backs our learning with simple neuroscience to make it applicable for us to all use right away for immediate results. What I think is fascinating as we're exploring this topic together is that education is not the only field that can benefit from the understanding of simple neuroscience. And there are equivalent fields that seek to translate neuroscience findings like to law or economics and social policy, bringing in research in behavior, regulation, decision making, reward, empathy and moral reasoning. When I received an email from Dr. Stevens about his new book that he wrote to help patients with psychological disorders with science based interventions, I was so interested in learning more. If American psychologist Dr. Daniel Amen, whose book The End of Mental Illness we reviewed on episode 128, believes that normal is a myth and that 51% of us will have a mental health issue in our lifetime like post-traumatic stress, depression, anxiety, addiction, and eating disorder just to name a few, then it's clear that it's more normal than not to have a mental health problem and we must all pay attention to the first sign of any mental health issue for ourselves, but especially for our younger generations, since it's critical for children's success in school and life. Research shows that students who receive social, emotional, and health support achieve better academically. And mental health is not simply the absence of mental illness, but also encompasses wellness, promotion, social, emotional, and behavioral health, and the ability to cope with life's challenges. Left unmet, Mental health problems are linked to costly negative outcomes such as academic and behavior problems, dropping out, and delinquency. Mental and behavior health problems not only affect students' short-term classroom engagement, but also interfere with long-term development of positive relationships and work-related skills. I've designed my questions for Dr. Stevens so we can all think of how we can apply his research in our lives if we're working with students or children who might have experienced trauma to see how we can use our emotional awareness, emotional validation, self-compassion, and gain a deeper understanding of specific emotions like maybe anger. Let's meet Dr. Stevens and learn the emotional science behind the brain. Welcome, Dr. Stevens. Thank you so much for meeting with me today to dive deeper into your new book coming out this fall, Effective Neuroscience and Psychotherapy, A Clinician's Guide for Working with Emotions. I am thrilled to have this opportunity to speak with you.
1: I'm really excited about it. This is a a book that I've been thinking about and uh, kind of working on, at least in my mind, for a long time. And I think it can be really a really big paradigm change in terms of how we approach psychotherapy. So I'm really excited to get the word out about the book.
0: Oh, for sure. And I'm excited about the questions. I was actually reading your book over the weekend. and But before we get to the questions, I've got to ask about your background and what led you to working in the field of psychotherapy but I've got to mention something I heard recently while you know doing the research over the weekend. I listened to the science of psychotherapy podcast you did and you did that last month and I had to actually stop and listen to make sure I heard it right. Did you actually work as an improv comedian? Uh, and then I wonder, what did you take from that experience to bring into your work as a psychologist?
1: I was. I was an improv comedian. Um, when I was getting my master's degree at the University of Albany. And that was kind of a, a weekend job. It was very fun. We traveled different colleges and perform improv shows. And I do think uh, that those skills did, I do apply those to psychotherapy. And if you know anything about improv comedy, it's always yes, and. You never negate the person. You never say, oh, that's that's not a gun. You're not supposed to say that. You always add to the scene. You're amplifying. And so with therapy, you never want to kind of negate the client negate their experience you always want to kind of go with the flow um to listen to right so in an improv comedy they always say you want to get out of your head you want to be there you'll be listening if you're trying to think about something funny to say you're probably failing so you think about okay i'm going to do this to the patient i'm going to help the client this way you're probably not listening to what the client's telling you and maybe you need to slow down and pay attention and just trust that, you know, your natural skills and abilities of the therapists will come out uh, in response to what the client needs. I don't have to say, oh, I've got this set thing that I have to do that's super important.
0: Oh, got it. That's really interesting for sure. And I remember back in Toronto, we used to go to improv and it was this place called Yuck Yucks. And then in my first book, I mentioned that it was actually where, um, now was the co- comedian guy that... Um, that did Dumber and Dumber, I forget. Jim Carrey? Yes, Jim Carrey. He actually started at the Yuck Yucks we used to go to back in Toronto. And then he took a lot of visualization that he used from his experience into his acting career. And it was how he, you know, visualized his first check. So he took his experience from from Yuck Yuck. Yeah, I've taught
1: a lot of psychology. And so just being able to be up there and not have a script, really kind of helps me because you never know where the class is going to go or the questions the student might ask. So to be open to all that and to try to kind of think through things on the spot and try to answer questions you may not be prepared for, you know, it really preps you, that background.
0: Oh, definitely, definitely. So getting to the questions that tie into your book, I saw that you mentioned that research supports the idea that for many people, psychotherapy remains ineffective with little explanation as to why. And I've actually always wondered, why does talking about our problems solve them without changing your thinking? Because we could still have like negative thoughts about whatever it is running through our head unless we change the emotion attached to it. So I like that you've got cognitive behavioral therapy in your background, but can you explain where previous forms of psychotherapy have failed and what you found to be missing and how your book offers a new way forward through your research in effective neuroscience.
1: Sure, sure. So this is really kind of the foundation of the book here. So you look at mm-hmm. cognitive behavioral therapy. The basic theory is, is like you change your thinking, that changes how you feel. And another paradigm, kind of the more psychodynamic therapy, is often like you develop an insight, right, an understanding, and then that changes your behavior, how you feel. And there's little evidence, especially if you look at the neuroscience that changing our thinking actually change how we feel. All right. It may change how we cope with emotions. So CBT is a very helpful uh, modality of therapy to learn how to cope with emotions, how to manage symptoms, how to not personalize things. Has a lot of uh, value in that sense, but it's not holistic in the sense, you know, no one comes to me and says, Hey, Lee, you know, you really got to help me. My thinking is awful. No, they come to me and say, Lee, uh, I feel like garbage. You know, Mm -hmm. can you help me with that? So really, what we want to do is we want to target therapy more at the emotion, less at the thinking. Uh, you know, they're they're all interrelated. They're all kind of uh, part of the same thing. And you know, you definitely want to ad- address thoughts on some level, but we need more interventions that are targeted towards emotion and changing emotion. And if, as we talk more, and in the book we talk about things like affect reconsolidation that actually did really change traumatic emotions difficult feelings, you need to kind of pair that with, uh, opposite emotions as you activate emotion. So really we need to kind of think about, um, how we approach psychotherapy and look towards like, well, we're not just trying to manage the symptoms. We're actually trying to change the feelings themselves. And that's going to give us a different approach towards how we can cure people. And I think, uh, eventually increase the effect size and make psychotherapy a much kind of sounder and better science.
0: Definitely. When I think about it, and I would always talk about this process that I learned just to stop the thought, like say, stop. I never really thought about the emotion behind the thought. It was just like, this thing is bothering me. And then when you're doing certain things where you're not focused on your work, it comes back into your head. I'm still not addressing how that thought was making me feel, right? That's, I'm missing. Exactly. Yeah.
1: So if you look at the science, it looks like probably an emotion or an experience is probably driving that thinking. So say like some anxiety, right. You know, maybe you're worried about something. Right. And so we can do all these therapeutic interventions that are commonplace now uh, mindfulness, letting go of a rumination, uh, you know, cognitive reappraisal to change that thought, to let go of it, to make it better. Mm -hmm. And that stuff is helpful, but it doesn't necessarily understand like, well, what's driving that thought. And if there's a, an anxious, uh, feeling or notion, I know, I'm not good enough, or, you know, I'm a failure, right? Some sort of deeper feeling there, then we want to address that for kind of long-term enduring, as Richard Lane would say, therapeutic change. We don't just want to manage the symptoms of like letting go of the thought because, you know, that'll help, but you may always have what's driving that thought there. And we want to try to change that itself.
0: Got it. Got it. And I think I asked this a little bit later, but uh, it, it's relevant now, so let's just say I figure out, um, you know, I've got this thing that's bothering me, and I dive deeper into the emotion behind it, and I see, you know, does it help to go back to childhood and see, you know, find the roots of why I'm thinking this way? Is that one of the ways that you're helping people solve it? How how do we know? Yeah, great question. I mean, that's that's one of the kind of the
1: psychodynamic approaches, right? You've to kind of go back to childhood and unlock those memories, and that changes things. And, you know, I don't think you have to have some sort of prescription when you go back, but you do have to deal with your feelings, which is really hard. You know, emotions are difficult. I mean, that's why maybe sometimes we gravitate to more of these kind of cognitive approaches because we're not dealing with these kind of icky emotions. And so maybe there is, you know, I tell my patients like you don't necessarily have to go back to childhood. If you have an emotion from childhood that's affecting you now, well, we got to deal with that emotion. That's, that's causing a problem. So if you've got some sort of like, um, you know, deep feeling start from childhood. You feel worthless, or you feel no good. You know, we have to address that feeling, and it's going to be very difficult to address. It's very uncomfortable. It's not pleasant. We we typically try to avoid it. We defend against it. But if we can, you know, be kind to that feeling and work with it, then we can make make some therapeutic change.
0: Got it. So, you know, this weekend I was working on my questions for you, and my husband's out doing some work at our, his uh, local sheriff's office here in Arizona. He does some work in his spare time, and so I'm at my desk, he comes home, and I'm always curious to hear what he sees in the field as it relates to mental health. And what he shares when he gets back is always eye-opening, especially if we've never dealt with someone who's struggling with mental health in a serious way. And I just shake my head because the stories are outrageous. For someone who works directly with people who struggle with mental health and What have you seen with the outcome of treatment for someone getting better versus staying on the same path?
1: Yeah, so uh, a couple things there. One thing is like talk about your husband. You know, one thing I've I've noticed is um, you know all emotions are valid. You know, they may not make sense. They may not be germane to the situation. They could be something left over from childhood, but they're all real. They're all within us. They're none none of it is just like uh, you know the emotion itself is a problem. Uh, All the emotions are, are valuable. Now you're asking, well, what, what makes maybe the difference between some people that think it better, that overcome this and some people that don't, and really it has to do with our ability to be able to activate and and manage and change that initial feeling. So there's a couple of things there is ability to kind of like, uh, be aware of it, uh, recognize what that deeper feeling is. Um, there is the ability to manage that feeling when it comes up, if it's too overwhelming, you know, we're not going to want to activate that feeling. So we have to have some emotion regulation skills uh, to help manage if, if uh, deep feelings do come up. We do feel overwhelmed that we're not going to kind of go back to drinking or become suicidal, right? We have to mm-hmm. have confidence that whatever feeling we have, we'll be able to cope with that. And that really makes a difference between those that are able to kind of uh, transform these feelings and those that just kind of stay stuck, just kind of avoiding their feelings.
0: Got it. So sometimes he goes back to the same location and sees the same people doing the same things and having the same problems. And a part of me just wonders, do people just give up on people that are having the same thing? Do you ever see someone and think, oh, goodness, I can't help you. You're you're not going to change. Or do you have hope for every single person? like they're a, Maybe you know, I'm
1: idealistic. I probably fall on the end of the hope. I mean, you can, you definitely see these patterns where it happens again and again, but I always try to be curious and think beyond that, you know, what's, what's happening that I'm missing, right? Um, I I always make the assumption that people aren't trying to ruin their lives. They're not trying to sabotage themselves. So what's getting in it. And I often find it's like, it's maybe it's an unaddressed feeling. It's some sort of weird dynamic that keeps playing out in their life that they're not even kind of privy to. And if we can kind of uh, take a step back look at that and be curious about it and be willing to have those feelings then we can start to say oh well when this happens i do this which causes this and then we get into the same fight every time right you see this in couples therapy all the time they come in Mm -hmm. they fight about the same thing over and over again nothing ever gets better so you know a lot of times it's like okay let's slow down and pay attention what's happened to us in the moment
0: got it got it that makes sense well looking at the table of contents of your book i see part one you talk about the science and you've got your argument for a new approach to therapy. And then part two, you've got the practice where you walk us through how we've got to cope with understanding our emotions. Can you just explain both parts of the book and how you've been intentional with how you introduce topics for us?
1: Yeah, great question. Well, you know, I never wanted to write a book. This is not really something that interests me. You know, it's a lot of work, it's time consuming, but I really wanted to put these ideas together and down on paper. And I thought, well, you know, the most important thing here is like for clinicians to have some skills to be able to work with, be able to change uh, patient outcomes for the better. But I also wanted to say like, you know, and I studied neuroscience and my postdoc and this is I wanted to explain, well, why is it why, why are we using this approach? Why is it better than say another approach? And so I wrote kind of the first section on the, the, the neuroscience, the affective neuroscience. So. The science section is kind of more of the you know nuts and bolts of it. May not interest all the readers. They may want to skip through that. Uh, the the second section more of the practice and how do you put that in into uh, practice with a with a client? You know, if you're a therapist, what can you use? And I tell people try not to read the book cover to cover. You know, find what you need there because although I, I lay it out sequentially, different patients might be in different processes, and you might be working with different emotions. You may have to kind of go to that emotion. And there's all these of notes in the book to kind of go back if you want to learn more about why desire you know causes that we can look at the dopamine circuit and you can read about that but if you just want to help the client just go ahead with this for now so it's a book you can really kind of come back to and kind of grow as you learn more as you want to get more involved in the science you can kind of go back to that first section and read through that if you're just kind of looking about okay how do i help a patient with jealousy well we can just go right to that section
0: Got it. And I, I'm always thinking about how do we apply this to educators in the classroom? Because that's a, a lot of our listeners or our teachers or people in the workplace that just want to have a look at this. And teachers are now having to have all these roles with dealing with children with trauma. How could a teacher use this,
1: do you think? Oh, yeah, there's a big push now for the social emotional learning. Yeah. You know, and there's more and more recently that, you know, if you're. Uh, not doing well emotionally, it's hard for you to kind of engage in cognitive development and right. and develop those kind of parts of our brain that we typically associate with education.
0: Mm-hmm. So
1: we want to address, you know, our students' feelings. We want to address their concerns. And you know, if they are, say, overwhelmed with anxiety in the classroom, that we we tend to that. That we help them manage that anxiety, work through it, go past it, so that they can then be in a position when they can come into that classroom and learn. Uh, you know, teachers dealing with trauma, it's like, oh boy, like you've got kind of two caps now, not only are you trying to teach the basic ABCs, but you're also uh, trying to, you know, uh, be a social worker and help them find the right services. And so it's a lot, but I recommend that you always want to validate what they're going through, Mm -hmm. their feelings, and try to help them connect to the right resources to to get these emotional issues resolved so they can kind of maybe engage more in the traditional kind of cognitive role of the classroom.
0: Definitely, and and seeing how learning happens in the brain is helpful. Would you have any of the chapters you can think that a teacher should look at? So, time. if you look at the, the brain, like, you know, like
1: uh, very much like emotion is tied with, with learning. And I think we were talking at the beginning, it's like you had uh, Bruce Perry on, and you were saying, well, he made it seem so much fun. And I, I enjoyed that so much, right? So, it's like when you're enjoying something, when you're invested in it, it, you know, learning doesn't have to be something where you're sitting down and trying to memorize facts. That seems like a waste of time to me. It should be something where you're kind of like excited about things, you're kind of opening up new ideas. And that really, is an emotional process as much as it is a cognitive one
0: definitely i remember like back to some of our earlier episodes we had mark Brackett on and he wrote the book permission to feel and you know just talked about how you know many of us have been raised to hide our emotions so i like how you actually listed some of the emotions and we talked about um jack Pansack on the on the podcast and some of the emotions in the brain that he talks about, but what should we all know about our emotions and how our brain processes them so we don't get stuck in life?
1: Yeah, so uh, a good example here, and I always tell my clients about this is kind of, you know, Leslie Greenberg's research on secondary and primary emotions, which is like, you know, Mm -hmm. sometimes, you know and I always do the same, this is why we have depression. You know, sometimes like, oh, I have depression, I need to take medication for it. It's like, no, probably if you're depressed, there's probably a problem there something going on your brain that you want to address. You know, we don't just, you know, it's very, it's very rare. I mean, I think there's certain genetics and certain, you know, biological factors that can contribute to it, but we usually just don't feel depressed for no reason. So it's like, you know, say someone dies, we're sad, right? We're going to be Mm -hmm. sad. Something I can do about that. Something I should do about that. That's a loss. We want to grieve that, right? But sometimes Mm -hmm. we're sad and we don't want to grieve that loss. We don't want to accept those feelings. We want to accept that death. So we push it down, but the feelings are pushing up. So if you see that, that's a state of dissidence right there. Mm-hmm. You know We're in conflict with ourselves, that we want to feel sad, but we don't want to let ourselves feel sad. And in that stuck state, we're going to have psychopathology, we're going to have depression, anxiety. And so we want to do, that's something I can fix, is we take the lid off that. and we can accept those feelings, allow ourselves to grieve, have those feelings, let them pass, no longer are we in that stuck state of depression, we're moving forward and now there's space to grow. To, you know, we're not in a negative feeling anymore. That's a secondary emotion. The primary emotion is sadness. That's natural. We're going to feel that. But a secondary emotion comes when we're in that stuck state We, where that never changes. That's suffering. Study Buddhism it goes on forever.
0: Wow. This is, this is good. And this is deep. And could we just take this to like a practical example that we're dealing with every day? So, you know, we get an emotional charge about something like who knows what it is, but we're going through our day and then something happens. We're like, oh, that's just like, then you feel that anger. Can you explain how we've got to understand behind whatever we're feeling? And then maybe use Joseph Ledoux's work that you talk about with the the reconsolidation of whatever we're feeling. How do we take this feeling? Sure.
1: Great. Another great question here. And in the book, I tell this story about I used to work at the VA with veterans and they had a lot of had road rage. It seemed like a common theme for these veterans. So they come to my office and a lot of times like, you know what? I'm sorry. My anger got out of control. You know, I got to stop it. I'll control my anger better last time. You know, let me get out of here. You know, some someone cut out in front of them and they would just go into a rage and they want to drive that person off the road. And then they would feel bad about it afterwards. And they would just say, I'm sorry. It's my anger. But if I could kind of get them to sit down and be curious and be with their feelings, you know, they had a lot to be angry about, you know, they had gone to wars. They want to go to, they did things they want to do. Right. And so they were made to feel angry. They were put in situations that they had no power. And whenever you're in a situation like that, it's going to make you angry. So these veterans had a lot of anger. Now what happened is someone pull out in front of them. And if someone pulls out in front of you, like it makes us all angry. You know, no one likes that, but for the normal average person, they don't go into a rage. There's like, maybe they beep their horn or at the stop sign and say, hey, be careful. You almost hit me there. You're going watch where you're driving. But these guys would go into a rage. They would go crazy. And um, what would happen is, is it would activate all these past feelings, all this past anger from things that happened in the past. And so they're in a rage. And so rightfully so, this rage, this anger makes sense. It's just not germane to the situation. It's just not about the little lady that pulled out in front of them. All right. It's about all their past anger. So if I get them to recognize, hey, this road rage, it's not about this person that pulled in front of you, you just got to, you know, not get so upset about it. It's about all these past feelings, all this past anger you're not dealing with. And if we can allow ourselves to have that anger, accept it, you know, be kind to it. And and eventually with anger, we want to work towards forgiveness. That kind of gets into a whole other section there. But to work with that, then we can reconsolidate that feeling, we can change it and you're not stuck feeling that anger all the time. You know, if you just kind of more traditional therapy mechanisms like, okay, breathe deep, count to 10, all right, anger is gone, good, get back, you know, but they're never, you're never dealing with the actual anger itself, which is really what's driving the problem. So they'll be able to manage it better, but they're still always gonna be angry. And, you know, I want my patients to have a full amelioration of symptoms, not to be able to manage it, but to not feel that, that anger and pain all in, anymore.
0: I think it's pretty powerful when you can get to that root cause, because usually things that push our buttons today are not because of anything today. They're from like 10, 20 years ago.
1: Yeah. I tell my if something really upsets you or really reactivates you, it's probably not about the current situation. It's probably about the past.
0: Right. Right. But people have to do a little bit of work to dig to figure that out. It's normally not right. Like in their thought process. Right. They're thinking, oh, this thing is really like, really- yeah,
1: I would say in general, we typically over attribute our feelings to external things mm-hmm. and under attribute our feelings to internal things, which is how we feel inside, maybe emotions we've been carrying around from the past.
0: Mm-hmm. And how do you get people to dig into that? Is it just through when they come to see you? Do you do give them homework or?
1: Well, I really encourage my patients to allow themselves to have the feeling. And if they can recognize, oh, here's the feeling. And there's no one out there bothering me, you know, no one's stressing me out, no one is on my case, and I'm still upset, I'm still anxious, I'm still angry, then they can start to take some ownership of that, like, oh, maybe that's not about my boss, or maybe that's not about my wife that's giving me a hard time, maybe that's actually something to do with me, and I need to kind of take a look at that and take some ownership of it, and when you do that, when you can take ownership of the feeling, well, now you've got control over it if you're always blaming your boss, it's like, well, we can't change your boss. And so, oh, well now I'm stuck. What more can I do? I give up. But if we can say, well, a lot of that feeling might come from within you, maybe from feeling powerless in the past or what have you. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now we can fix that. Cause we have, that's within us. We have control over that.
0: Got it. And it, and it takes kind of you having to stop and be mindful. Cause we're so busy. Who has time We'd normally? Yeah. Yeah. Most people are like,
1: oh, the, you know, the, the
0: traffic's the problem. Yeah. My boss, is the problem. it's like,
1: well, actually wait, I'm stressed out every day. Maybe it's something to do with me.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, this is good. This is good. So, so the next question covers brain network theory. And I, I love seeing that when I looked through your table of contents. And we cover it on episode 48 with the idea that uh, with learning, we've got to be able to switch between the central executive network and the salience and the imagination to have those flashes of creativity with learning. Um, so, with with what you talk about in your book, how do we learn to integrate our entire brain so that we can make better decisions by using our networks?
1: Hmm. Yeah. Great. Great question. Here again. So, you know, I think what's happening here is a lot of this psychopathology is like these brain networks in uh, dissidents, right? So, you know, you're you're feeling one thing. Uh, but you don't want to feel that, so you push it down. And so, you know, your uh, your salience network writes like saying, "Hey, you should be sad about this." But you know, your central executive network, like, "Well, I don't want to deal with this right now. Not a good time." So you push it down. So you have these kind of uh, networks, brain areas that are kind of in dissidence, and we want to try to integrate that. You know, one of the uh, examples I would tell my students is like say someone says, hey, you want to go out for some pizza and beer? And it's like, well, I got an exam tomorrow. Well, you're kind of stuck right there, right? So, you know, you could you could kind of go out, but then you feel guilty, you're not studying, or you could stay in, but then you feel bad, you're missing out. And so neither way, there's a win, right? You're going to feel bad. But if you can kind of integrate the thoughts and the feelings, those say those two different networks, well, then you can start thinking, well, maybe I could go out tomorrow night, or you know what, this exam is really important for me and I want to do this and I'm really, you know, I really want to do that. So that's really where my most valuable feeling lies. And so then we're not in as much conflict. So we want to try to be able to integrate our thoughts, our feelings, our full experience, whatever it is, and then we can resolve kind of the dissonance, the conflict that rests within the brain.
0: And that's a hard one, right? Because like, you know, when you're studying for something, you're in your central executive network and then. Like when you talk about someone's coming for pizza, I was trying to think of a a fun example. I was like, well, who could knock at my door that would get me to stop doing my work? And I was thinking of a famous actor that would be at the door. And I, I haven't seen a Matt Damon movie in 10 years. So I'm like, no, it's not Matt Damon. I was thinking maybe Philip Seymour Hoffman, if he was still around, if he knocked at my door, I'd go down and I'd go for coffee with Philip Seymour Hoffman, but that's my feeling brain, you know, like I'd love to have a chat with him, but I got all this work to do. And so how do we know, how, how do we control that thinking brain versus feeling brain with like a really good opportunity to go and do something. You know, you have to be really steadfast with your goals. I'd like, say, sorry, Philip Seymour Hoffman can't go for coffee today. I've got to prepare for this interview. Like, how do yeah, do I that? would say
1: you probably don't have as much control as you would like to have, right? Mm-hmm. So in that example, like Philip Seymour Hoffman's coming, that's really exciting. I mean, this mm-hmm. is a this is a great opportunity. Like you're gonna be excited about this, right? It's gonna be hard to say, well, let me put my, you know, uh, let me put put that aside and tell him I can't see him right now because I have to prepare for this interview. I mean, that's gonna create that kind of natural dissonance that we talk mm-hmm. about. And this is where you see pathology developing, right? If you're say, you know, under the age of like 12 or 10, you're just going to go see Philip Seymour Hoffman. Like you're not going to think about homework at that point, right? Right. You don't have that kind of frontal cortex developed Mm -hmm. yet to things. And those individuals, they don't have psychopathology. They're Mm -hmm. happy, right? (laughs) Now you get above age 12. And if you look at like Inside Out, it's a great example. It's the movie. Mm -hmm. But then you might say, well, you know what? I can't spend time with Philip Seymour Hoffman right now. I have to, I have to study. Well, you're going to be in conflict. And if you feel shame because it's like, you know what? I feel guilty or I feel shame that I shouldn't even get excited about Philip anymore, Hoffman when I know how important this interview is. Well, now you're pushing your feelings down even more. All right. You're going to, it's going to cause more pathology and you're going to be in this state of dissonance and maybe you'll get the interview done, but you won't enjoy it. You won't be happy. And you're going to be in this, this state of pathology.
0: Wow. That's good. That's really good. And so, so what's the best thing to do is to, um, what, what would you do? You've got something really important yet. You feel that cognitive dissonance. You Do you choose work first?
1: Oh, this is a great question, right? Because work's very important. So what do I do? You know, and I, I had to do a lot of this, you know, when I was writing this book, right? It's yeah. like, okay,
0: uh-huh. it's beautiful
1: day out, but I want to get this chapter written so I can meet my deadline. Right. Mm-hmm. So what 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 i do is i say i acknowledge oh it's a beautiful day out oh Philip Hoffman's here like i do have that feeling like Mm -hmm. you know i can't control that like that's how i feel i totally you can't control your feelings you can only control how you respond to your feelings right Right. and i say okay you know what like i'm not going to totally deny that feeling i might say philip hoffman hey can you meet me at noon or well i'm going to work for a couple more hours and you know And I also recognize that I really want to write this book. I really want to get prepared for this interview. This is really important to me. I'm really excited about this. You know, if I hadn't written this book, I wouldn't be here sitting to you and have this opportunity. And so I remind myself of all the valuable things that are going to come out of me, you know, sitting down and kind of writing this chapter, even though maybe I'm missing a bit of uh, sunshine out there. And when I do that, I, I, I get excited about writing. I get invested. And so I enjoyed writing this book for the most part you know, and that made it doable. You know, um, if it was a slog, I would probably be, you know, trying to find something Seymour Hoffman and see if he go outside with me because it's a beautiful day
0: out. Right. Oh, this is, that. that's a really good way of thinking about it because there's so much more to what you're doing that you can look past going and hanging out with somebody or enjoying the day. There's there's this other vision that you put your mind on that. Helps. Yeah, and if it was Philip Seymour Hoffman, believe
1: me, I would shut my computer down and I would be out the door with him. And that's okay, right? Because that's something I'm really excited about. But if it's something that's less exciting, I got to remind myself that it's like, okay, wait, you know, I'm really invested in this. This is, has a lot of meaning towards me. And I'm going to, uh, you know,
0: do this, even though maybe I have a, some of an inclination to run outside. Oh, I like this. this these are great answers. So we've we've actually covered Joseph Ledoux's concept of memory reconsolidation on one of the episodes. And you address in your book, you call it affect reconsolidation. Can you share what you've learned with your research and what strategies you offer with this idea to help people to overcome negative emotions associated with past trauma that could be impacting or damaging their life?
1: Yeah, so yeah, the, the, the term in the neuroscience literature is memory consolidation. What that means is whenever you activate a memory and you restore it, it's never the same memory. So it's interesting, we never have the same memory twice. So we're always remembering a memory. So I remember my child, but I'm actually remembering, remembering my childhood. I don't actually, not there. So if you look at like Elizabeth Loftus' work, memory can be very variable, right? And so this is interesting. It shows that we can kind of, uh, 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 our brain's liable, it can change. And so I use the term affect reconsolidation because we're really not trying to change your memory. And so you had a traumatic event. We're not trying to change like, Oh, that didn't happen. You know, mm-hmm. that, that wouldn't be possible. You can't reconsolidate that memory to that degree either. We're trying to change the emotion. So that's why I call it affect reconsolidation. We're not trying to change the memory around that event. We're trying to change the emotional nature around that event. So instead of a traumatic event being something that I can't accept or deal with or handle, it's something that's like, okay, I accept this about me. I'm able to have those feelings. You know, maybe I can even start to learn and grow from it in some ways. And so what you do for that affect reconsolidation process is you activate that emotion, which is very uncomfortable, but you're activating that old emotion and then you're repairing it with another emotion. So say you grew up and you know you felt worthless, you know, no, no one ever valued me, my parents never paid enough attention to me. I feel worthless. You want to activate that feeling and then you wanna pair it with a feeling of worth. So I do feel worthlessness, that does exist with me, but I also have another feeling, right? I even say to my patients, well, you're coming to therapy. So that takes effort. That shows me you have at least some worth for yourself. We're pairing those two feelings together. And my patients will say, my brain hurts when I do this, because you're pairing this like, okay, I have this unworth, but I also know I have worth. And then when you do that, and you can rewrite the worth over the unworth, that changes. So then you don't have that activated feeling of unworthiness all the time. You're able to feel worthy about yourself as a whole. And that overcomes, say, that childhood trauma that changes it, It reconsolidates it.
0: So it's almost like, you know, I always thought before I started doing this work that our memories were like videotapes. You would just rewind and see the memory again. Exactly. Which, so you're kind of saying that we go back and we edit. So we're doing a cut and then we're adding in a new emotion to the old emotion and so now our memory changes. We're actually trauma. changing the
1: old emotion. So uh, when that event gets reactivated or whatever kind of uh, circuit activates that kind of traumatic response, instead of responding with a traumatic feeling, we're responding with a feeling of acceptance or okay or if it's unworth, worth or if it's unlovableness, lovableness, right We're changing whatever that is. if it's fear mm-hmm. and safety, you know we're, we're providing the opposite emotion.
0: Oh, that's good. That's good. I love that. Is there anything that's important that you think we've missed about your book that we haven't talked about yet? Have I missed something in these questions?
1: Oh wow. We've been on. we've gone over a lot. One thing, you know, is that that distinction between internal and external, right? So when we talk about affect reconsolidation, these are internal emotions, but sometimes emotions are external. And we also like, you know, um, Maybe we're having difficult with our, difficulty with our family. And that might be a real emotion, you know, based on our real environment. And that would maybe involve a different type of treatment. So we might want to learn how to set boundaries or, you know, how to use I statements with our spouse, right? So there can be other um, non-trauma-based uh, uh therapeutic strategies that can be available too that people might want to use as well that's also part of the book. definitely so maybe, trauma is definitely something that needs to be addressed a lot of patients have that but not all patients do and there's strategies for them too
0: got it so just to sum up everything your final thoughts if someone's picking up your book what do you want them to know and how do you want them to use it yeah hey
1: i'm frustrated with psychotherapy. Either I'm a therapist or a client. It's not working for me. Why not? I'll let me pick up Lee's book and see if I can take a look at this from another angle and see
0: what I've been missing. Definitely. Dr. Stevens, I want to thank you so much for your time today. I've learned so much from flipping through your book. Oh, that's um, spe- great. Well, specifically with the questions I pulled out, I definitely wanted to dive a little bit deeper into brain network theory and reconsolidation and uh, you know, thinking about how we can use this in our classrooms if we're a teacher and if we're a parent. And we're just trying to understand our emotions better. Uh, and you dive into some of the emotions like anger and jealousy. These are all things that we del- deal with in the classroom with our students. And uh, I just want to thank you so much for this. If anyone wants to learn more, they can go to your website. I'll put the link in the show notes. And and I know you've got research on your website. Can you just share what studies you've got up on your website? Sure. I, so
1: I've, I've done a lot of research on this, both from kind of the emotional approach of therapy to some of the neuroscience. Um, I just posted um, uh, one recently, came out in the Journal of... Uh, um, neuropsychology and it's about empathy and compassion and pro-social behavior and how we can use compassion uh, to manage our empathy response to engage in pro-social behavior. And this is very important for any um, clinician that might be struggling with burnout or having trouble, you know, uh, you know, managing all the stress they're going through is how do we provide that self-compassion, which allows that empathy which can help us engage in pro-social behavior to either, you know, be a good teacher or be a good therapist to be good to other people, you know, and it turns out if we don't have compassion for ourselves, you know, if we can't be kind to our own feelings, it's very hard for us to have uh, empathy and concern for other people.
0: Well, that's interesting for sure. Well, thank you so much for your time today. I'll put the links to everything in the show notes and I appreciate the research you've done and for coming on the podcast today.